Good morning, church family. Good to be with you today as we learn uh, through God's word, as we worship through song, through our serving, through our giving, and now through our learning. We worship uh, throughout uh, this whole uh, moment together, and this continues throughout our entire week of worshiping our God. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25 <clears throat> as we get ready to go into the second parable that we're going to uh, learn about today when it comes down to this big idea that people get ready. People get ready. The more I learn, the harder it gets. Has anybody else experienced that? The more I learn, the more that I take in scripture, the more that I dive into it, the more I realize, my goodness, I'm supposed to say to people, get ready. And so I've had some intense moments over the past week has been the most intense with the Lord. Not bad. Intense, typically we were like, oh, that's intense, that must be bad. No, this is good stuff. Intense, uh, not really wrestling, but just moments, interactions of People get ready. And he's talking in the, this Olivet Discourse, uh, named after he, he talked, he spoke in the uh, Mount of Olives. So it's the end, signs of the times, right? The end times he's talking about here. And he's telling his disciples in this final sermon between them, get ready, be ready, be watchful. And as I go into this, I think, seri I think he's serious. Jesus is serious, Amen. He is so serious about this, it begins to grip me to the point to where I, I hope that I can convey what I'm learning, uh, what I think I'm learning, and may the Holy Spirit open our ears to what he's really, truly saying, despite how it comes across. How about that? May the Holy Spirit teach us this word that we can then likewise be ready. As I go through Matthew chapter 25, we just came out of Matthew 24, of course, and the disciples, they're there for Passover, and the disciples came away from the temple and saying to Jesus, wow, look at this building, isn't it beautiful? And Jesus says, that's great, it's going away. And then they're having this conversation, and then he begins to talk about, you know, he's going to, he's not going to be with them much longer. He says, he says, you got to be ready for the times. And here's some signs of the times going through Matthew 24. We went through all of that and laid out uh, three different phases, uh, 15 total signs you can be looking for with regards to the closer we get to the coming of Christ. We also learned, and I'm sure that uh, many of you knew this, but you need to be told again, nobody knows except God the Father. Jesus has defaulted knowledge to the Father completely about when he is to come back. Anybody that tries to say he is coming back in 2024, you need, to, you need to not listen to that. It is false teaching. Now, there's times where I say, he could. He could come back in 2024. I'm not telling you that he would. It Definitely he could. He could come back at any moment. So I want to make sure that we're wise in these end times as we are navigating the world around us. They anticipated, the Jewish readers here, uh, anticipated it was the signs of the times when Jesus was on sight. They figured it all made sense, and you're just you're here, you're going to set up your kingdom, everything's going to be just fine. So when he started saying crazy things like, oh, um, and I, that's going to go away and I'm going to die. And they're like, what? This doesn't make sense in our own understanding of Scripture. So we have expectations, Jesus. 
You ever felt this before? I have expectations, Jesus, and you should meet those. Hmm. Let's just call it for what it is. We do this. I expect this. Therefore, can you just go ahead and sprinkle a little blessing on this? And let it be so. And so talking to the disciples, the first one he's talking about, parable number one, is the faithful servant versus the evil servant. We learned about how we are to know our role. We are to be obedient and we are to remain faithful. This is what we are called to do. And every time I come through this passage of scripture as I'm going over 24 and 25, I've never taught in the years that I have taught from a, a platform like this, teaching out of God's word, I don't remember ever teaching on some signs of the times and people get ready. So this is hard for me right now. This is intense for me. And as I'm reading this and I keep seeing, watch, be ready, be ready, be on the watch, be aware, right? Be sober-minded as other scriptures will throw in there. And the reality is he's not kidding. And so I immediately then turn to myself and I say, okay, Gordo, are you really ready Right, this isn't a matter of doubting my faith. This is a matter of I don't want to miss the faith. Like I don't want to miss it altogether. And so I have these moments together and I say, Lord, I don't want to just serve you and know of you. I really want to know you. How can that be different than what I'm doing? If I'm supposed to just keep doing what I'm doing, then I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. But I just wonder, Lord, how can I, how can I really, truly, intimately know you in a way that I don't know if I do? I'm just asking. You should ask these questions. You, in prayer, you should wrestle with conversations with the Lord. Again, we're not talking about doubting your faith. We're talking about really pursuing it. And so I have these conversations with the Lord as I go, okay, so question one, am I ready? Am I really ready? When you come back for your church, am I going to be caught up with you? I just, like I'm just having a conversation here. You ever been there? You ever have a conversation with the Lord? You're afraid to tell other, everybody else because they're going to think I'm crazy or weird or I doubt my faith. Well, I don't have that privilege of just keeping it to myself. So I lay it out here before you. Maybe you can relate to it. And then secondly... Within my role, the way that I serve here at CLC as pastor, I, I, I have to ask the question, is the church ready? And I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that as we will learn through this parable, there are some that are just not prepared. And this isn't a, an opportunity for us to be like, man, I wish so-and-so was here right now. They really need to hear this. I'm going to tell them about this mess. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it on a cassette tape, right? Back in the day we used to do that. And I'm going to send it to them. And I'm going to let them have it. And I'm, I'm going to download it. And I'm going to give it to them. Right here in this moment, we have lots of opportunities to think about all the other people that need this truth. But today I'm asking that you and me focus on the inside and ask this question of ourselves. Am I ready? The intensity of the urgency just won't go away. And I did it to myself. I prayed, Lord, 
I think there's an urgency in your word. Help me see that urgency. That's my fault. I should have just been okay with being okay. But I asked for a sense of urgency. And to understand the fact that even before this sermon is over today, he could come back. Amen? He could come back for his church. I know sometimes I really get into the teaching and some of y'all are praying Jesus will come back. Because I'm just into it, right? Let's go. And so regardless, let that be a, a reminder to you, a trigger that says, um, man, I want to pray that the Lord should return. And I hear all the, all the, the counter conversations to that of, yeah, but I want to experience this. Because there are wonderful things that God has allowed us to experience in this world, right? We get to experience a God-ordained family. That we get to experience marriage. We get to experience uh, what it's like to really be a part of a group and a community. We get to experience a variety of things. Traveling. We get to experience hiking in nature. We get to take that nature and cut it up in logs and set it on fire and call it a campfire. We get to do that. And then we put marshmallows over it because we're weird. And then we put it between uh, graham crackers and put chocolate on it. It's like, oh, this is so great. We get to experience these things. And I get it. If I should say, Jesus, please just come back at any time. We're ready. We have that angst, that, that, that anxiety, that, that feeling that, but I don't want to miss this. We're just going to have to wrestle with that because the reality is we should always be ready. Not because we don't want to be here in the sense of like, I'm ready to leave all this behind. This is all junk anyway. That's probably not the right heart posture to begin with. But to be able to say, Lord, I want to experience as much of this world as you want me to, but I'm ready. Every morning, church, we should wake up and just say, I'm ready for you to come back. I don't believe I have anything against anyone. No unforgiveness. I don't believe anybody has anything against uh, towards me. So I believe that my relationships are set. I think those are going okay. Is there anything inside of me that's hindering our relationship? I'm ready. I am not wanting to miss certain things. But above all else, I'm not willing to miss out on you, Lord. Imagine what that could do to our families. If people were so sold out, they say, listen, I'm ready to go at any time. Sure, I want to experience this and I want to experience that. But when the Lord calls, I'm ready to go. And expect and anticipate that. I don't know. That we, just we're just talking about within our four walls, so to speak. I don't know that we're fully ready. I don't think we are. And I want you to hear today, think, Lord, am I ready? And I want you to sit in that as we walk through this parable for you to think through and see what the Lord should show you about your Readiness. We're going to learn about, uh, through this parable, there's a wedding going on. I like weddings. I really like officiating weddings because it gives me more to do than just attending the wedding. I get bored. No offense, I do. Uh, easily, so easily I do. I got to work on that. But um, 
That's how the Lord made me. And so I love officiating the weddings because I have a job to do, right? Like I get to say stuff and do stuff and um, I don't think it's all about me, but anyway, it's fun. And so I go to these weddings and some of my favorite weddings is when we go to, everybody's getting married in a barn these days, right? Born in a barn? No, but married in one, right? Like everybody's, everybody's been getting married in barns and they're beautiful. They're wonderful. They have all the decor and all the modern stuff. And so I have a good time. I love going where you have the, the ceremony at the, by the tables or very close to near the tables or the same venue that you're going to have the reception because it just it just narrows down the time. I just enjoy that. I enjoy that. I'll totally do a wedding other places too. Like don't be like, oh, he won't do my wedding now. But the reality is like, I just, do, I do enjoy those. I've done a wedding on a beach um, where uh, the clouds were rolling in. You can see this clear line, right? And there should have been a sign there to like, this shouldn't happen. Um, but it did. And then six months later, it didn't. So I don't know. So we had, I've done it on, on, on a beach and I've done all kinds of weddings. And, and, and in order to understand the parable, you can't have an, you, you got you got to stop for a minute thinking about the Western culture mindset of weddings, because we're not talking about an American wedding or our thought process of a wedding. It, when I when I was engaged in, uh, I met Shelley at the beginning of 2003, and then um, and then. Uh, and then engaged at the end of the year, 2003, on December 9th. And so I said, will you? She said, okay. And then we decided to get married a year and a half later, right? So you have the engagement period. Then you move on to the wedding, and the wedding was just a day. It was just a day. It was a, it was a long day. It was a long day. It was, a, you know, the morning time, and everybody getting ready, and all these feelings and stuff. And, and then you get into the, the time of the wedding, and you promise your life away, because you don't know what you're doing. And you, and you just get into that, and, and, then you, and then eventually you go on to a honeymoon. There's so many feelings. There's excitement, there's doubt, there's joyful, there's anticipation, wonder, and a whole bunch of ignorance, amen? Like, there's so much, you don't know what you're getting into. I tell, there is, she understands this now, but I used to tell Shelly before she really grasped it, I love you so much more today than I did when we got married. And she would almost get offended. And I'm like, why are you offended? Don't you want me to love you more? The reality is, you do not fully, completely, all, all togetherly understand what you're doing when you're getting married. It's as you're staying committed to one another throughout the the time of your life that you begin to understand what love really is. You begin to understand that it's more of a commitment than a feeling. You begin to understand that I'm in this for the long haul. And so that's why I say that at weddings, there's oftentimes ignorance and of course, a lot of wedded bliss. This is our view of wedding. But in order to understand the parable, I have to walk you through an ancient Jewish wedding and for you to be able to have an understanding of what this looks like. There was three basic phases of an ancient Jewish wedding, okay? So get out of our minds what we think we know, and let's learn something new today. There was first the uh, betrothal. Now, there was... I mean, you, you, could, you could argue that there was an engagement even when they were children. Two fathers would come together and you'd have the boy and you'd have the girl and the fathers would get together and say, hey, let's make this happen. And then the groom's father, bridegroom's father, would pay a bride price, no joke, um, and to the father for the hand of his daughter. Um, this wasn't, uh, this wasn't uh, weird in the culture. This was a, a gift. Like, I want to give you a gift. We want to prearrange this, uh, this ch these children to be married together. And they, ought, they wouldn't have any say in it whatsoever. It was an arranged marriage. That was the culture. Many of us today, right, you can't get past the Western culture thought process. You're going, I can't believe they would do that. It was probably a lot easier on the kids than it, than, than it is on us today. No joke. So they get into this arranged marriage. You could probably consider that portion more of what we know of as engagement. 
Because the betrothal was not really an engagement like we know it today. It was a legally binding uh, moment. There, there was even elements of vows that were exchanged. Like this was true. In scripture it would even talk about uh, you know, a widow, a, vir- a, a, a virgin widow. And you'd be like, well, that doesn't make any sense. How's that? Because the betrothal could last a good period of time. It could last about a year. You have this agreement, you come together, and then you have this bride price, right, at some point in time from the, the groom's parents to the bride's parents. And then the, the husband, the groom, the husband-to-be, goes away for about a year to set up house and home. He goes away to prepare a place for his bride. And so he would go and typically he would just simply add an additional space or room onto his father's house. You tracking with me? And so you can see all the wedding language throughout scripture is so consistent with Jesus and the church. And so the, the bridegroom would go and prepare this place for his bride. And when it was ready, he would come back for his bride. Now this betrothal was a big deal. He was to focus entirely on the preparation for his bride. He was even allowed out of, according to Deuteronomy, out of uh, military service. Because his point, the goal, the intensity behind it was like, hey, you got to get ready because your woman's coming home. And then after the betrothal, which again will last about a year, there would be, uh, the second thing would be like the return of the bridegroom for the bride. He would return about a year, but they didn't know exactly when it was going to be. It could be, you know, you know, this side or that side about a year, but it was usually about a year. And he would travel to the bride's house to get his bride. And then there would be the bridesmaids, which we're going we're, we're to learn about today, a little bit there. And then they would go on this walk. They'd go on this parade route. The longest parade route they could find through the village. So that everybody could come alongside them and say, Hey, way to go. Congratulations. This is great. Yeah. And they would even toss coins out at their feet for them. And you're like, you know, the longest route you take, the more money you might get. And so they're taking this route all around. And then eventually they get to the, the place where the, the bridegroom has established for the bride. Uh, But the party didn't stop there. And so now that just begins about a week party, a week feast, a week celebration, um, a week long, not not week in like week, you know what I mean, like a time frame. And so you have this time frame of a week where people are celebrating, enjoying one another and eating and drinking. And it's just, oh yeah, we're celebrating this wedding. And for the, again, you with me? A whole week. And so at the end of this week, the best man would typically take the groom, the bridegroom, and the bride's hand, join them together, and tell everybody to get out. (laughs) Go home. Enough is enough. We're leaving the bride and the groom to themselves. And this would be the first time that they had been alone together since the betrothal began. And then as nature takes its course, you know, and then they consummate the marriage in this moment, and they begin to share their lives together. This is an ancient Jewish wedding. So when we go through this parable, you'll have a better working knowledge of what you're actually hearing and what you're reading as we go through here. And then, of course, I'll stop and break things apart so we can understand it better. Matthew chapter 25, and we're in verse 1. 
Then the kingdom of heaven will be taken, uh, will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So they knew that it was going to be about a year, but they didn't know exactly what time it was. This is potentially what it would have looked like, one of these lamps. Now, the word lamp that we have in our English, the Greek word could have also been translated torch. It could have been something like this. It could have also been more of like a pole and then a cloth stuffed at the top with olive oil inside there. And then they would use that as well. This is what I have. This is not, uh, this is a replica. I did not find this in uh, Israel or anything like that. This was on Amazon.com. And so don't try to steal it thinking that you're going to get a lot of money out of it because you won't unless you return it. And so, um, so what they would do is they would fill this hole up here all the way to the very top to make sure that the olive oil was filled up. They said you could use any oil you want. I thought it would be weird to use vegetable oil because it just stinks. And so I pour the olive oil in here. I didn't because I didn't want to put a flame up in here and be responsible for that. And so they light the wick. And then they would carry this around carefully to be able to light the way. Because when the bridegroom would come, it was usually more like at nighttime. Not too terribly late, but at night. Why? Because now I can make a big deal about it with lights. And there's a focus. Because if it's during the day, everything's lit up. But if at night, I'm the one with a bunch of people around me with lamps, now we can see this, this party coming. Here comes the parade. And they're lighting everything up using, uh, using that lamp. Now, in the day, this was a flask. And so they would fill this up to have extra oil. Fill that up and fill this up so when that starts to run dry, you can just add a little bit more oil and you can keep the flame going. If it starts dying down, you add to and it just reignites. So here we have the bridegroom is on his way. Five of them, the bridesmaids, well, let's start there for a second, bridesmaids. In the New Living Translation, it says bridesmaids. Um, in other translations, it would say virgins. The reason why it says virgins is because, biblically speaking, the understanding, especially within the culture, our culture is very different today, is that when you spoke of a girl being a virgin, you knew she had never been married. Why? Because the understanding was is that you waited until you were married to no longer be a virgin. Today's very different. I want to make sure we're very clear of the text of what they're talking about. These are unwed uh, women in this parable. And, uh, and the, the word that they're using in the living translation is, is bridesmaids. Five of them were foolish. The Greek word is moros. We get our word moron from this word. No joke. We get our word more on from this. So you have five that are foolish, and then you have five that are wise. And this word speaks of the brain and how they are mentally with it, mentally focused, mentally aware. So biblically speaking, if we're not ready, that's moronic. That's the way that it is. And so if you are ready, you are focused, you are with it, even sober-minded. And that's, the, that's what's going on here when Jesus is talking to his disciples. In our culture today, we would probably say this a lot different because we're so offendable today. But in this culture, no, like, oh, get it, yep, bring it on, yep, got it, yeah. They could handle this conversation. Um, so that's why I kind of uh, walk us through it a little bit. Verse 3, the five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. 
I just got to be real with you. As I'm reading this parable, my personality screams ignorant, unwise, bright maiden. I'm just being real because here's what they did. They filled this up figuring that's all I need. And then I'm sure he'll be there in no time. They all lit it together as we'll see here soon. And they just figured I'll just use what I have. Why waste the time of carrying a flask with me when this is probably enough? That's so me. I can't tell you how many times I've said to myself, I should take my keys with me as I sometimes I'll just go for a walk. I'll go down the speedway and get, get a drink down there and then come back up here and just walk through town and see people. And, and I'll leave my keys here because after all, there's two or three people in the building. I don't need my keys. And I get back to find out apparently the rapture happened and the doors got locked. <laughs> and so I'm knocking on the door and everybody's gone. And I'm like, what in the world happened here? So I shimmy through a window praying that God, if a police officer comes by, please let them be one of these people that I know, not a new hire. I can't do a new hire right now because that might be a little bit too much for them. And, and so I'm not telling you which window because you might try it. But I get, I get into the building and then I realize like my keys are, are in the office. The office is locked and I'm just like, somebody come and help me because I just figured it's not a big deal. My personality is not a big deal. It's okay. It'll happen. It'll all work out and nothing without the preparation to know for sure. So now I still fight myself on taking my keys, but I argue and I still do it. I still take them. I'm going to take my keys. This is ridiculous. I can't believe I take my keys. Why do you take your keys? This is so dumb. And then I put them, come to find out. <gasps> Look at there. I needed them today. I'm so smart, right? Like after I argue with myself, now I'm so smart. And so I began to learn to be more prepared, though I naturally, organically don't lean towards that. I don't. To lean towards, to, to, to get to a place a number of years ago where I had to plan out messages was hard for me. But I didn't want to show up on Sunday morning and be like, I think you guys want to hear about, you know, something like that, because that just didn't seem like it was a good idea. And so I had to learn how to prepare ahead of time. Now I have things planned and scheduled, if the Lord allows, through the summer. So at least I have a focus. I have a direction. It's about being prepared. Number five, verse five. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. That's just funny to me. They're just out there going, where's he at? I don't know, I'm so exhausted. And they fell asleep on the ground. Remember, in this culture, it was no big deal just to lay on the ground. It wasn't a big deal. Just pull up some grass, pull up some dirt, and just kind of chill there for a moment. And, and so let's talk about some of these words in here. The word delayed. If this is paralleling, which it is, paralleling Jesus, understand it's not delay in the sense of you're late. Not like that. Jesus is never late, amen? He's always on time. He knows what he's doing. He's got it all worked out. There is a plan. You just may not be aware of it yet. And so the reality is he's not delayed in the sense of being late. He's delayed in the sense of like the time keeps going on. It's not meeting my expectations, right? Even the disciples said, okay, so this shouldn't take much longer, right? Because the world's crazy as it is. And Jesus blows up their understanding of, of their doctrine, even uh, their theology to say, wait, we're going a certain way. We're going a certain direction. And, and blows everything up in their face. And so when, 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 Jesus, when Jesus says, track me with me for a minute. When Jesus says, be ready, 
oftentimes we hear like what, how you should be prepared. Get ready. But we don't always do it. And so now you have the bridesmaids who are waiting. They're like, ah, he's still tarrying, would be another word to use. And they become drowsy. Now the wise and the foolish fell asleep. The issue clearly wasn't whether or not they fell asleep. Now there will be some in our church family and around the world that will fall asleep and they'll just kind of like get weary and fade away, no doubt. But this isn't about the sleep. This is about the, prepar the preparation leading up to when the groom arrives. And so, uh, verse 6, at midnight they were, they were roused by the shout, Look, the, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. Now, midnight was not a usual time. You need to know. It was an unusual time. It was an unexpected time time that the bridegroom came to receive his bride. And there were and then they all woke up. Whoa, he's coming. Okay, here we go. So they got they already had their lamps prepared. The unwise ones are looking and they see that, oh, it's starting to go down, and so they need to have more oil. So all the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps, and then the five foolish ones asked the other ones, please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. So the wise ones are standing there getting ready to pour this in, uh, let's say, and the other ones are going, we didn't bring enough. Any way you could just help us out a little bit, give us what you need. Now when we look at that, we would say, oh, what's the harm in sharing this a little bit? Understand what you're reading. This is a parable. In the parable, it's not just about giving them something. It's about something much bigger. And when they say, hey, can I just uh, benefit off of your preparedness? The answer is no. But the others replied, we don't have enough for all of us. Go to the shop and buy some. At midnight? Here's where I really see their foolishness. They went off to buy more oil. Who's open? They didn't have 24-hour Walmart this time. Like they went, they went off to go find some oil. Clearly, they had to know they wouldn't be able to find any oil, but nonetheless, they still went off to be able to do this. Now, when we're talking about this sharing of the oil, there are some things that we simply cannot put off, and spiritual things are one of those. With that understanding, there are some things you just cannot borrow. Parents, your faith is not your children's faith. Children, you need to understand... You don't just get a pass because grandma was faithful. There comes a point in time where you need to sit in this yourself and ask the question, do I believe what I am being taught? Do I believe this? Now I understand when we have teenagers and then parents kind of get a little bit nervous when teenagers are wrestling, there, there, there's, a wonderful, there's a wonderful preciousness in the wrestling as you have people come alongside that teenager to be able to say, or young person, adult, whatever, could be, could be in their 40s, 50s, or older. But this person, we're just talking about teenagers in this understanding, and so we come alongside this student and we say, let's talk through it. Let's focus our attention on God's word and let's bring them always back. And then likewise, the parents can do the very same thing. Because your faith is not your child's faith and vice versa. You don't get to borrow that.
Oftentimes in the scripture, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Hey, I'm not prepared. Um, can I get some of that Holy Spirit? <laughs> Sound kind of weird. You remember reading through scripture, there was a rich man that wanted to buy the influence from some of the disciples. Hey, what do I do? I want to do that stuff too. I want to heal people and I want to do these things. You cannot borrow faith from someone else. It has to be your faith. Number 10, verse 10. But while they were gone to buy oil, so they went off in their foolishness to go buy oil, the bridegroom came. He showed up. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was locked. Later, when the, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. Verse 12. But he called back. Believe me, I don't know you. So then he... I would imagine he looked at his disciples a little bit more intently, perhaps. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or hour of my return. There's a beautiful parallel here related to our relationship with Jesus. And I want to walk through this parallel with you so we understand what's going on here as best as we can. Oftentimes, there's scholarship. Uh, you have uh, Bible scholars that are very divided on different sides of what, what's being taught somewhere here. I will share with you what I'm learning, and we'll go from there. The betrothal represents uh, our salvation. This idea that Jesus is the groom and we are called the bride of Christ, his church. The church is called the bride of Christ. This is consistent throughout scripture where Jesus is called the, the bridegroom and the church, we are called the bride of Christ. He paid the bride price. Remember we talked about the bride price? The bridegroom's father would pay to the, to the bride's uh, father. And so he paid that in full with his blood, with his death on the cross. He paid the bride Christ. We are clearly in the betrothal period even right now. How do we know? Because he said to his disciples before he went to heaven, hey, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Stay with me. And when it's ready, I'm going to come back and get you. He says, there's plenty of room in my father's house. If it were not so, I would not have told you. And so you see this consistent wedding language throughout when you're like, wow, this is for real. Imagine if our marriages truly represented the marriage of the bridegroom Jesus and his church, the bride. Imagine if our relationships mirrored the relationship between Christ and us as church. I know it's hard to understand that or even grasp that because we have mutilated marriage in our culture. It is so different in the conversations. But you can see the picture of the covenant of the bridegroom with his bride. Be encouraged, church. Jesus, the bridegroom, is not going to get tired of you. He fully loves you and gave his life for you. 
He is committed to this, beyond committed. He's covenanted to this. When we sing the song, Jesus is by my side, you know why he's by your side? Because you're by his side. We need to stop this understanding that Jesus is a genie in a bottle and he's just going to help me through life. No, 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 change our, through, change, change our mindset here. Understanding Jesus is, is on his way. He's doing a thing. And we get to decide whether or not we want to join on with him. So if he's by my side, it's only because I'm by his side. And it's not on my own doing. It's because the Holy Spirit drew me. And then I decided to follow him. He's not my dude. He's not my bro. He's, he's, he's my Lord and my Savior. We need to keep this right. We need to keep the role correct. He is the master. And I am the servant. So the betrothal, clearly we're in this phase, if you will. The next part would be the return of the bridegroom for the bride. This would represent... The, the rapture of the church. In John 14, we know that he's going to prepare a place, and when it's ready, he's going to come back for his church. This is that idea that he is coming toward the earth to receive his church, to then eventually come back to the earth with his church. So you're looking for the groom, Jesus, to receive his bride, us, and to take us home. That's this idea of the, of the, of the return of the bridegroom. Now, you could argue that uh, in the second coming, referring to the time that Jesus comes to the earth, because the, the, remember we talked about the possible, like the two-parter, where he comes toward the earth and the next he comes to the earth. This is the second coming in which he comes to the earth after the tribulation and all those things. And so with this, you could say this is even referring to that. Why do I say that? Because when, when in Scripture, when it's, when, with this passage, this parable, it says that he received the, the, the bridesmaids, brought them with them, right? And then went into the feast, the wedding feast, and locked the door. Indicates finality. We know throughout Revelation that there will be people that will have an opportunity to get saved in the tribulation time. So there's still an opportunity, still an open door. So I wonder whether or not that could refer to that time he comes to the earth. Regardless of whether or not he's coming toward or coming to in this, what we are told to do is be ready. Don't get caught up in all this stuff. When, we, when people get arguing about, well, it's got to be this, it's got to be that. Well, what we know for sure is you got to be ready. Regardless. You need to be ready. And finally, the wedding feast, or no, also known as the wedding banquet of the Lamb. This is the return of Christ for the wedding feast in Revelation 19. A huge, wonderful, amazing celebration as Christ, the bridegroom, receives his bride and they're celebrating. What an amazing covenant celebrated in those moments. So you can see all this wedding language, how it parallels our relationship with the Lord. Jesus is not messing around. He lays it out very clearly to be ready. And yet some will still not be ready. Why? Because they choose not to be. Because they simply just are still floating along. 
no big deal. You know what? I'll get to that later. Oh, I totally believe I'll submit right before I die. I've had people say to me, I just figured right before I die, I would just submit to the Lord. I mean, that's great if you don't, you're not around any buses, you know, like, you, you can't call time out and be like, you know what? Okay. And then, you know, that's a bad plan. It's a terrible plan because you don't know. You're not guaranteed your next breath. This is not to scare us. This is to awaken us, to make us realize, I got to be aware. Like you almost have this intensity of sitting on the edge of your seat just waiting. We still have work to do. We still have the message to share. Still got to pay your mortgage. We're still going to gather and we're still going to worship. But it's with this understanding that, hey, there's no guarantee. That is why he says, don't just make plans. You should first say, if the Lord allows, we will, do, we will live and do this or that. James 4. It's a heart posture thing. You want to be prepared? You got to place yourself in the understanding like at any moment, this could truly go down. To help us be ready... Here's three things to consider. Some people seem to be uh, fit for the role, but lack a prepared soul. All the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. They all got up. They were all ready to go. They all looked the part. They all had uh, some oil. They all had at least a lamp or a torch of some sort. They were ready. They were dressed the part, but they weren't prepared. Only half of them were prepared. Some people just looked the part. The Pharisees did. The Jewish people would say, if anybody's going to make heaven, certainly the Pharisees will make heaven because they're so good. They looked the part, but they lacked the prepared heart. Right? All too often, we gather because we love community. No one in the world should ever out-love the way the church does. And I'm talking about love in the understanding of God's love. I'm talking about encouraging one another, supporting one another, challenging one another, keeping accountability for one another, speaking truth and love to one another. And we come along and we just, listen, this is the church. And we're going to protect the church. People want to be a part of that. So they'll say the right things and even dress the right way, whatever that is. And so they'll do all these things, and the reality is they're not even prepared. They're not prepared. They just like to be a part of a group, maybe even a social group, so to speak. The most dangerous thing to a person's preparedness is for a person to believe they are a believer, but they're actually not. What a tragedy. For somebody to be thinking, oh man, I'm all good. You know, like, I, I, I've, I've learned so much about the Lord and I'm, and I'm on track and I'm doing this. And the reality is you never really knew Jesus. One of my favorite authors, Dr. Seuss, is, is an amazing uh, book writer of his day. And so I've, I've read through, I've got a number of his books, probably three quarters of the books that he wrote, I have. And so they're all different uh, shapes and sizes and, and conditions. But I just wanted this library of Dr. Seuss that he wrote. But I got to be honest with you, I know a lot of him, but I don't know him. You can't treat the same way within the life of your faith. It's not enough to know of God or to know, oh yeah, I totally believe there's a God. Great, so does the enemy. Where does that take you further, right? Because they're not repenting. So where do you go with it? Just knowing of God is not enough. 
We must receive that free gift of salvation. You've already, it's already been paid for. That bride price has already been paid. And so now you get to choose to follow in that salvation and receive that gift, that real gift of eternal life. The reason why here in our, this is how we play it out here in our church family at CLC is if, if we're here together, it's the first time we ever met each other and you come through the door as many people uh, do in different churches and, 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 uh, and they, they, you know, hey, my name is so-and-so, you know, and they love to participate. Hey, I'd love to do this and do this and do this. And there was a day where I'd be like, oh man, warm body, get up there. Oh yeah, go up there and do this and go over there and pass that out or do something like that. We're very intentional, strict even to say, come and worship alongside us for about three to six months. That's like a half a year. It sure is, yeah. And it slows down the process. Because when people begin to think and then believe that their giving of their time and sharing of their financial resources with the church family, that that is what makes them right with God, they begin believing a false truth. So I want people to sit and be Sometimes people are coming from difficult situations and you need you to come sit and heal. And in some cases, we'll stay and we'll, we'll do life together and we'll worship together and we'll serve alongside each other. And other times, they go on to other ministries. But we take our time working with people and going alongside. So before we do anything with regards to serving, we say, hey, have you gone through CLC 101? Let's talk about what that looks like. Why would you want to be a part of something you don't even agree, you're not even a part of? Right? Let us walk with you in this so you know for sure what you're saying yes to or what you're saying no to. That's why we do that. Secondly, borrowed faith is not real faith. Then the five foolish ones asked the, the others, please give us of your oil because our lamps are going out. We didn't prepare. Please let us use some of your preparedness. That's as ridiculous as going into a classroom where they're about to give you a math test and they hand the test on the table and you go, whoa, okay, I better get ready. Too late. What's done is done. You just need to regurgitate whatever you think you know on this paper and let it be so. But we, what do we try to do? We try to take other people's preparedness. Filling it up. Look over there. What are you going to do over there, right? Yeah. We try to steal another person's preparedness. And as long as we pass, that's good enough because I'll never do it again. It'll be okay. Please just help me out this one time. There will be a day when the door will be locked. You have to understand the intensity with this. The door will be locked. It'll be shut. There won't be another opportunity. Please get this now before it's too late. Be prepared. Ask the Lord, am I really prepared? And then you can think about your family and if they're prepared and what the next step is. And finally, a time will come when the door will shut and the Lord will say, I know you not. Wow. That's a moment right there. But didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I feed people in your name? Didn't I clothe people in your name? Didn't I do wonderful things in your name? And the one that I've been pursuing, at least I thought, 
doesn't even know me. I don't think any of us want that. You think it's bad enough working for somebody that doesn't know your name. This goes way beyond working for somebody who says, I never knew you. Meaning you never knew me. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. Church, we need to wake up and get engaged fully, trusting the Lord. I don't know how this is going to work out, Lord, but I trust you. Let's keep moving forward. Let the Lord guide you in that. Because at the end of the day, people, we need to get ready. So here's how you practically live that out. Live holy. Live godly. And live ready. Live holy, godly, and ready. Not really sure what that looks like? Read through through the scriptures. It'll make it very clear. Let's have conversations. Hey, I'm not really sure. Should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? And let's wrestle with that together. Let's talk through that. Don't try to figure it all out on your own. Walk with people. The moment you say, no, not a big deal. I'll just figure it out on my own. You're already deceived. You need the church to come around you, pray over you, uh, and pray into you, and just encourage you every step of the way, and give you truth, wise counsel. So live holy. Live godly and live ready. Next week, we'll finish up Matthew 25 as we finish the final parable in this Olivet Discourse. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is hard to take sometimes. Um, I thank you for what you're showing us today. I thank you for being so real. I thank you for being so um, open direct. God, you know in our culture today, your directness can be very offensive. I mean, it was offensive back in the day that you walked the earth, Jesus, but um, I wonder if it's even more so today. I don't know. But what I do know is, Lord, uh, we just need to speak the truth. I pray that your church would be so bold and courageous to speak truth with covered in great love covered in great love for me to speak your word to people with gentleness and kindness and not back down from it. I don't have to be angry to be right. I just need to be right to be right. And so if I'm going to hold on to your word, then I can speak that truth. May it be an encouragement to the church family today to be ready. Jesus, we need to be ready. So we can look forward to you coming back for your church. What a day, what a day that will be. In Jesus' name, all the church says, amen. Will you stand and let's recite our scripture today. Uh, These Living Lent Daily books are over there on the next step table. You can grab it. It's basically just a reading guide is all it is for you to be able to uh, read through Scripture as we're going up to Easter. What a great thing to either add to if you don't have a devotional time to use this to to get get it going. You can grab one of those. If we run out, we'll print some more. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 to 21. Read this with me. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish 
accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now let's go and be the church.